Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 26, 2019. It's episode 2459 of the Survival Podcast. And i got a great one for you today. Dylan Allen, who has been a very long time listener to this show, I think going back to about 2010, uh, you might know him as Angus Bangus on the blog and the forum and in other social media places online. Uh, he recently embarked on a, uh, it wasn't a three-hour cruise, it was a multi-day cruise in a sailboat across the Atlantic Ocean. His boss asked him, hey, do you think you can help me move this sailboat across the sea? And he said, that sounds like a fun thing to do. Fortunately, being a listener to TSP, he went out well-prepared. That ended up being a very, very good decision because some things went really right and some things went really, really, really wrong. I mean, big time. And uh, it was being prepared that helped him indeed get home. And he has a story of true survival and some fun and things went right as well. Uh, today and what being prepared meant out on the open sea. This will be a good uh, episode for everybody, not just those of you who might have a hankering sometime to try this type of thing yourself. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. I have always sought first to use herbs in my healing. That's always where I've gone first. I've said this many times, but if like I need modern medicine, I will go there. Whether it's an Advil or a surgeon, because let's say I have a yield sign in my spleen, I want modern medicine for certain things. But in a lot of situations, you really are better off trying the natural cures that nature has for us. The problem you get into, though, is there's an awful lot of snake oil salesmen in the world of herbs. Western Botanicals is a real company with real people that really care about you. They're a lawyer's loyal sponsor that's been with us for about eight years now. They give away their discount membership program that costs 50 bucks for free to MSB members. And if it's legal and herbal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. And everything there is either wildcrafted or organically grown. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Bulk Ammo. Bulk Ammo is where I go to get my ammo. And there's a few reasons. The most important reason is, well, I need ammo. Because without ammo, all the guns I have are kind of useless. They're like barter items or pawn shop items or expensive clubs. you got to have ammo to make your gun do what guns do, to train with it, to defend your family, to put food on your family table. You need it for all of it. The next reason is pricing and the selection are great. The third reason and the big reason is the speed of shipping. Um, I don't know about you guys, but my time's valuable to me. And going into a store and having to deal with people, if I don't have to, I don't want to. Man, when I order my ammo from Bulk Ammo, it ends up on my front door so fast. I Oh, like, wow, I just really, like, Amazon Prime ain't got nothing on these guys. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. And, of course, they do do a discount for members of the Members Support Brigade. Uh, last but not least, remember, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, the easy way to do that is join the MSB. That'll cost you 50 bucks a year. In return for the 50 bucks a year, you'll get a bunch of cool content. The big thing is you'll get discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. I'm going to make a commitment to you. If you get in there, look at all the discounts. Make sure you don't forget that you have the membership. And whenever you're going to buy something in the world of preparedness and lifestyle design and homesteading, all that stuff, you check first and see if there's a supplier there that has what you need. 
and you use your discounts, that over the year you won't just get your 50 bucks back. You'll probably end up at least doubling your investment. That's smart money, and that's how I built the program. And at the same time that you're making a good investment for your own financial needs, you're also investing in the show that you listen to five days a week. So do consider doing that. It comes out to supporting the show at about 18 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and welcome our special guest today. Again, Dylan Allen. He has been on the show before, talked to us about a bunch of other stuff, but he's here to talk to us today about the shit hitting the fan for an old man in the sea. And then we will uh, wrap things up at the end with a discussion on getting grants for your business or for your projects from corporations. With that, hey, Dylan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be back. Glad we, to have made it back. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. We, we had you on in the past, talked about a bunch of stuff, including some anarchist thought. I bet you... I just bet you a little bit of that will permeate into today's show. But we want to talk about, well, the way you called it is the shit hit the fan for an old man in the sea. TSP pays off uh, way off grid. Um, before we get into that, tell people a little bit about yourself, Dylan, man. Who are you? You know, the you take us back to, I don't know, high school, space and out study hall or something and how you end up where you are today. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the last time I was on the show, I talked a lot about my kind of engineering background. Uh, you know, I grew up, wanted to be a marine biologist and uh, then a doctor, and then I ended up being a chemical, mechanical, nuclear engineer and designing and building nuclear reactors for the Navy, uh, which let me come home uh, to Mississippi where, where I'm, I'm working for the power company here, uh, you know, in our, in our nuclear business. And uh, so that, that's, the, that's the business side. You can go back and check the last episode for more on that. But the, the part that gets me to where I am in this story um, you know, when I was a kid, about 10 years old, I started sailing. Uh, we have a pretty big, uh, inland lake here in Mississippi that I, I grew up sailing on. And, uh, as I got a little older, I started sailing down the Caribbean, uh, you know, did some time in the, in the Navy, not on a ship primarily, but I was out to sea a few times on, on some ships. Um, and so I, I've always had just a deep love, uh, for the sea and, um, my, uh, my boss, uh, recently bought a boat and he's like, Hey, uh, can you help me move this thing? And I said, you know what? I sure can. And uh, and so we we started the planning effort for this thing, and uh, you know that, that that's that's what brought me to where we are. So cool, man. So how does how does sailing tie into this audience when we look at it as a, a modern survival topic? You know, like not everybody out there has a boat or is going to have a boat, and. Certainly not everybody's going to go across the open sea. So, so how does this tie into everybody? Right. So, you know, way, way back, I th you did an episode with, with a sailor that, li you know, lived aboard a sailboat. And it's a, it's very similar to, to off-grid living. Um, you know, for this particular passage, you know, when we left, we were going from Houston uh, over to two new uh, Gulfport, Mississippi is where we were aiming. We ended up in New Orleans. Um the you know when you're out there you're you're just at the whim of whatever mother nature and the laws of physics deem appropriate to throw at you and uh for this trip she decided to warm up in the bullpen for the first couple of innings but once she came out she came out throwing heaters uh and, you know once we, and so once we're out to sea you know we're literally off grid uh and out beyond even radio range no communications or systems to support beyond the, what we took with us and uh, even if we did turn in and head for the coast, you know, where we were, the coastline where we were is primarily just big industry or or just sparsely inhabited wetlands that are receding into the ocean. You know, in south southwest Louisiana, there's there's nothing. There's no people. There's nothing. Other, you know, there's some fishermen, 
um, you might you see some commercial traffic, but it's it's wasteland. It's nothing. So it's it's as out and off grid as you can get um, without going out to the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. Got you, man. And um, before you left, you mentioned to me that you were planning to uh, to fish on this trip. So uh, with the things that ended up eventually happening. Yeah, you fishing done while you're out there, and so what was it like? Yeah, yeah, we we took some spinning gear. We had we had four rods stacked on the back of the uh, the boat, and they the hooks never came off of the the rods there. Hmm. Um, but you know, most of the hours with hooks in the water actually came from trolling with some hand lines. Uh, I, there was a YouTube channel I saw. It's called Sailing Nahoa, and uh, and they they showed me via YouTube how to basically trail uh, some you know 200 pound test back there. And drag, I, I dragged two lures high and two lures low, and uh, you know just with some like deep diving lures. And uh, you put this thing called a teaser right down the middle that basically just bubbles up the water to get any predator fish that might be there interested and tracking, and then hopefully they'll hit your lures. So it was awesome. It drove them in. It, it drew a few of them in. Uh, all, all the lures that were deep diving got hit. You know we had one hook, uh, the, the treble hooks got straightened out on one of the lures. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, I caught two fish, caught two tuna, um, both of them. And I had, and that, that lure ended, ended up getting bitten off. It didn't, uh, the wire was just bitten through. So I don't know what hit it the last time. Uh, but I just, I put on some gloves, uh, you know, put a half wrap in, in that 200 pound test and dragged them in by hand. You know, it really gets some caveman points there. But yeah, we caught a 70 pound yellow fin and like 60 pound, some other kind of tuna. I think it was a black fin. Uh, and then I got to using my trusty Wahoo killer up on the deck, filleting the things. Um, it wasn't really a place to take one of Patrick's, you know, lightsabers that could cut through the boat. Uh, so so I, I did I did not do that. And it was just amazing to, like, literally eat sashimi the moment after slicing it free from the fish. You know, so, and, and I ended up with a, a cooler of tuna, small cooler of tuna that's vacuum sealed in my freezer now. After, uh, after, you know, peddling some out to, to my boss and, and my one of my employees who were, we were the crew – and uh, and we also had our first dinner when I got back home from from that tuna. So it was amazing fishing, and that was one of the highlights of the trip for sure. Very cool, man. So I mean, it's, it's what's funny is while I was gone for a couple of weeks out in Florida, I went out a couple of different trips with this uh, fishing guy buddy of mine out there, and he's actually considering like living three or four months uh, a year with his kids and his wife on the ocean. And he was talking about doing some of the stuff you were just talking about there while doing this. And he's like, he's like, he's like, you, you guys need to do some more shows on, on, on sailing. And I was like, well, it just so happens that when I get back, <laughs> yeah, so put him in touch. We can have mutual aid. I'll give him sailing tips if I can get on a boat with him every once in a while and, uh, and uh, just do some deep sea fishing. So, like, you know, in addition to lighthearted stuff like fishing, um, one of the things that, that this guy and I and pretty much every guide I fish with talk about is how you kind of have to prepare when you're on a boat. Even if you're just in the middle of a lake, you have to be prepared. But if you're going to you know, go crossing open ocean, you really have to be prepared. So what kind of planning did you do for so, this trip? Yeah, so I, I spent about a month planning and really kind of breaks into two categories. So one was the gear I wanted to take. Uh, you know, being a prepper, there, there's got to be gear. And then, then our, kind of our route strategy, uh, it was waters that none of us had been in. I was the most experienced sailor. One of our crew members was not an experienced sailor at all. He had no sailing experience. He was, he'd been in the Navy and understood boats, but not sailing. And, and stuff just 
goes wrong when you're at sea. You know, when, when times can get tough, <laughs> uh, and there's rarely, even if they're not, when you're out, out at sea. Uh, so, so, you know, taking everything I've learned from, from a decade listening to this redneck hippie jerk I know, uh, and applying it to this passage just seemed really appropriate. You know, so from, from a gear perspective, you know, taking in the five, you know, the five areas of need. So food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation, right? So, so food, we, we packed enough fresh food to last for our trip, right? So that's the, that's the primary plan, you know, store what you eat, right? And, and we tried to minimize the cooking because we knew that'd be hard. So we, we cooked a little bit of chicken and some veggies, but basically, you know, sandwiches made out of wraps and stuff like that, keeping paper plates and stuff. So we didn't have to wash dishes when we're rolling around in the ocean. But we also took enough, you know, nuts and granola and jerky and sardines, uh, those Matisse Gallega things that you uh, put on the, the uh, Amazon item every once in a while. You know, took cans of those things so we could last for two or three weeks worth of food. And uh, my boss had a, a few pa- a few MREs he had around, so we took those too. That way, if it really really did hit the fan and we ended up adrift somewhere out in the Gulf, we could make it a, a month or more. You know, it's, and- it's better to eat MREs than your first mate. That's right. You that's know? right. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah. We, we, it, it, although you know, he would have tasted pretty good uh, with the right seasoning. But yeah, we were. We'd rather <laughs> we'd rather eat chili con carne than chili con buddy. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, and you know, and we did hope to catch some fish and eat some of that. Which you know, we actually ended up being challenged for storage space for food um, once we caught those two tuna. We caught them all on the same day. So uh, once I filleted them down, it, it was better. But we were running out of food space pretty quick. And, and, and water, you know, water is a big deal because uh, what's the old saying? Uh, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. When you're out at sea, yeah. you can't drink that stuff, right? And it didn't have a water maker, and we shared the same water tanks for everything. So we took enough bottled water to get us through, uh, you know, our six-day trip with about a, almost a gallon each per day. Um, and and we, we started out trying to conserve it to, to the point, per, you know, as much as we could, Um so, so that we were using it for stuff like washing and, and uh, flushing primarily. And then, so shelter, right? So the boat's the primary shelter, you know, but, but when you're sailing, you're spending most of the time up deck in the elements. So we brought, I brought three sets of rain gear. Everybody made fun of me. We don't need that on this trip. And I had some light-duty pants and, and a jacket in case it got a little cooler because we were all expecting swimsuit and T-shirt weather. Um, but recall that Mother Nature was warming up in the bullpen, right? So the first heater she threw at us was like, 65 degree weather so we're all out there freezing our buns off when the, you know the wind's blowing 20 knots and it's 65 degrees your body wants to be 65 degrees pretty quick so so it was uh it got pretty rough and then from from an energy perspective you know obviously we had wind for propulsion we're a sailboat uh and, and from my per- perspective it was really the goal to use it exclusively sailing you know to the extent we could except when we were motoring around in harbors um but we had we had um, two tanks of diesel, a main and an aux tank of diesel. And but once we pulled away from the port, that's really all we had from an energy perspective. The boat didn't have solar or wind generating capability. And <laughs> after the doozy of the trip I'm going to go through, you know, we, you'll understand why my boss has decided to to add some solar to the boat. <laughs> uh, so and then for so security, right? You're out at sea, right? What, what could go wrong? Um, the owner and I are both are uh, pirates. Yeah, are exactly pirates, <laughs> maybe, right? You know, and it's, I, I joke about being a pirate, but the, you know, there are legitimate pirates, and, and we weren't planning on going any place where there's been reports of pirates, like down down close to Mexico or the Honduran coast. Um, but you know, we are both concealed carry permit holders, and so and we're so we're legal to carry in Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. Um, 
so we both had our handguns with us. And, you know, obviously in piracy, piracy situations, you can also use a flare as kind of a backup. Nobody wants to take a flare to the chest. Um, and, and considered taking a rifle, but just based on our routing, I, I didn't, I didn't think that was a necessary level. But the other part of security at sea is communications, right? Understanding who's where, where you are, where they are, where everybody's going. So you don't end up uh, in the exact same spot at the exact same time. And so, so we had the boats radios. We, I took my, I took two, uh, ham units and a, and a J pole. I could run up the, uh, the masts. It's difficult, but, but it works. Um, and then, um, you know, a, a number of handhelds. We, we had six or eight handheld VHF radios so that, you know, two is one, one is done. I don't know how high seven or eight is. I don't remember what Steve Harris says, but that's, we went as high as we could. We were, you know, every, every pocket had a radio in it. Um, and health and sanitation. So the boat uses the same water for flushing, rinse, and showering, and we, and we were far enough that we could pump the waste overboard. Um, so we, we tried to limit the water usage to the just just for flushing and hand washing. Um, as it turns out, the stern of, of a sailboat makes a very scenic urinal. Uh, you're always facing downwind, so it, it works, and the ocean doesn't care, right? Um, and, and we plan to shower from a health and sanitation perspective. Uh, but that, you know, we, we took some baby wipes just in case, you know, I figured I could take a field expedient shower, uh, with a baby wipe like I did back when I was in Central America. And that, so that, that worked out for us because we, we used the baby wipes more than we used the shower. Um, so that, that's kind of the gear aspect of it. Um, the route strategy, that's, that's the one that was, it was the most difficult planning I've ever done. Uh, so the, the Gulf of Mexico for anybody that had never been out there is just littered with oil and gas rigs. And on the chart, there's these areas called, quote, safety fairways. Um, there's still rigs in that area, but they're required to be lit at night. Okay. So, so outside those fairways, to use a golf analogy, you're in the rough. Like the rigs may or may not be lit up. They may or may not have any kind of indication that they're there. Uh, you know, and during the day, no big deal. You know, you, you can see them coming from and miss them just by miles. But, it, but at night under a new moon, you, you can't see squat. You know, even with a Q-beam coming off the bow of the boat, uh, you only have a few hundred yards to react if, you know, when it comes out of the shadows. So, you know, we had radar, but um, some of the gas rigs out there are just like a telephone pole sticking out of the water mm. and, and don't have a huge radar signature. So, you know, you, you might get within a mile or two before you know they're there. And that only gives you, you know, moving six to eight knots, that only gives you about 10 to 20 minutes max to react. Uh, so, you know, two, three in the morning – end of a watch you're tired it's dark uh you really got to be on your p's and q's so we tried it we were planning to stay in the safety fairway and um the wind prediction said it was going to be good to go it was actually going to work out perfect shifting from the north northeast all the way around to the south which was going to let us be on a very comfortable point of sail the whole way uh but that didn't really work out so it, it was a, it was a longer route that it, we, we said you know we're, we're going to go an extra 60 miles to stay in the safety fairway um and then once we figured out that we could actually navigate pretty well with the radar, we said, okay, we're going to cut the corner a little bit, but that's, that, that was it. So, so that, you know, the planning, and I, I, I was printing out maps every night, you know, my boss and I were on the phone way more than we are typically uh, just doing our day <laughs> job. Right? We were one, he was, he'd call me, I'd call him and he'd, he'd text me at 1am. So he's still awake. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at this map. Uh, and as it got close, you know, we were on the phone a few hours a day outside of work talking about details of weather planning, when planning and where we were trying to, to go. So plan, 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 and then execute. 
So, yeah, that's well, very cool, man. Man, so um, you know, we're ta we're going to talk about what went wrong. Let's talk about a happier subject first. What what went right in this trip? Yeah, so so like the basic route we picked that I, that we planned that that went pretty well. Uh, and like I said, we, we did cut the corners through some some water that was way more densely packed with oil and gas rigs, but we didn't do that until we had gone a whole night inside the safety fairway and operated solely with the radar because it was our all of our first experience doing that. And uh, I talked to some Coast Guard folks that I know who um, said, you know, look, if you got radar, you'll be good to go. But we didn't want to test it until we were in a place, you know, we we wanted to test it in a situation where we knew it was safe before we went to a place where. You know, you go clang in the middle of the night, uh, and then you go bloop, 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 and yeah, that. So, uh, the, the fishing, you know, as I mentioned, it, it was spectacular. Um, I'm, I'm now confident that I could feed myself with, with relatively little effort. You know, the effort's just making sure you've got good, uh, connections on your, your leader wires and stuff so that they don't. Heavy leaders and spare hooks. That's right. Heavy lures, <laughs> spare hooks, and, and spare lures. And the lures are actually relatively simple, so you can stack a bunch of them in. And if yeah. I had it to do over again, I would have, yeah, had had a little bit more ready for that. But it was amazing. Um, and, and I didn't use the fish. Really. You know, I just filleted the fish and tossed the rest back in the ocean to let whatever wanted to eat it eat it. Um, but if I was out there in a survival situation, I would have been using much more of that fish as as bait. And I would have had some bigger hooks for bigger fish once, you know, kind of move up the food chain. Um, you, you know, you kind of mentioned being out there and being surrounded by water but not being able to use it. You're also surrounded by salt. It's pretty hard to get to. So I guess long term, with that in mind, salt would be a good addition because you could salt that fish because you're always limited on cooler space. We're about to do a floater trip pretty soon after Pareto Spar, which is kind oh, of out nice. in the area where you guys were. And yeah. the, the, the limitation, even with a boat made for doing it, is – Well, there's only so much room. That's know, right. There's only so much room for the fish, so that's that's a, a thought there. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, it's not like a, not like a campground um, yeah. where where you can just go a little further and a little further and a little further. Now that's you, we had uh, we had 40 feet long and 14 feet wide. I guess the the benefit is at night you only have to miss those rigs by 14 feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and so so other than that, that that's about it. That's where that's where what went right kind of ends for me. Fishing and uh, we, we kind of followed the route we originally intended to, but we did cut the corners. So I'm, I'm just speculating here, but I'm kind of thinking, let's say that you had done this thing and you got in the boat and you just sailed your ass to where you were going and everything went perfectly. I probably would have got an email about it, but not an interview request. So that leads me to my next question. What went wrong? Uh, so <laughs> let's, start with, let's start with water. Right? So you know, I mentioned earlier that we, we started out – With the mindset of conserving water, because we know you never know what's going to go wrong, and if you assume everything's going to go right early, you run out of resources. Um, on our way out of Galveston Bay, right? So we're coming out of Houston, out of Galveston Bay. The water pump started failing in some way. We weren't sure if it was a leak or what, but it just started dribbling out of the faucets instead of pouring out of the faucets like you'd normally expect in your kitchen. So we, you know, we're, we're all kind of nuclear folks. We all started looking for leaks. Found a couple dribbles. We tightened up connections. Still wasn't working. Uh, so now we're like, there's no water coming out of the system anywhere. It's just not getting pumped. So we figured it was probably an impeller, and we didn't have a spare impeller or a spare pump at least. So we immediately just eliminated any water usage from the tank except to flush um, when we couldn't go use the, the outdoor urinal, as it were, uh, 
just just to maintain the function of that impeller as long as possible because we wanted to be able to flush uh, for sure because you know you don't you don't want a pile of poo uh, stacking up in a boat that would be disgusting and unsanitary in the worst way so uh, we 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 totally rationed the water down just to that function and, and including shifting all of our food to just stuff that didn't need dishes so making wraps making sandwiches just using a napkin as a plate. And uh, so we didn't have to wash anything. Uh, that was water. Um, the wind and the route. You know, I, I said the route kind of worked out. The wind started out like we planned too. It was a little stronger. We, we cool. We were making good speed. Uh, the first night, I, I slept and let them take the night. After I was comfortable, they could operate with the radar. And it shifted around to the east just like it was supposed to. And then it stopped. It was supposed to keep going around to the south. right? And on a sailboat, when you're trying to go east – the absolute worst direction for the wind to be coming from is east because you have to zigzag back and forth. So you have to go like twice as far as you normally would to get downrange. So after after the day that it shifted to the east, which is like the third day, we only made about 40 miles of progress down the track. So my boss just said, hey, let's head inland and let's just motor. So we head inland uh, and we motor. To get, you know, just straight in kind of towards the Louisiana coast. And, and we, we got into about 12 feet of water and anchored. And, uh, based on the weather I'll talk about in a minute, we ended up going, deciding we were going to the intercoastal. Uh, so our route totally changed at that point. Mm-hmm. We ended up going to Homa, you know, which is in the middle of Louisiana and, uh, up through New Orleans. We actually had to cross the Mississippi River. And, and right now there's like historically dangerous water levels and currents there. And, and a tug captain I know, he's a friend of mine that, that runs boats down there, said, said we picked pretty much the worst time to try that since he'd been working on the river. Um, so on top of that, there was also a bridge that was closed for maintenance on our new path that uh, we couldn't pass unless it was open because we have a mast, right? We're sticking way up in the sky. Uh, we had a 62-foot clearance, and we needed so we needed a bridge to open. So we lost it. We actually got stuck on it for a day and a half, and that's when – we had to enter the spousal contingency plan because our wives all expected us back on uh, on Sunday, and we were like, "Yeah, so we're gonna have to actually miss some extra work, take some extra vacation, and, and not get home the right day." Um, ended up working out. We worked with the bridge and hightailed it out of Homa at 2 a.m. in the morning uh, to make a brief opening that they were having. But that was the route. So the route got all jacked up, and we ended up, based on the timing, having to just stop in New Orleans and put the boat away temporarily. We didn't make it all the way to Gulfport where we were aiming. Um, and then the 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 biggest impact was our weather. Right? It started out awesome. It was it was a little cooler, right? Like I said, it was cooler than we wanted. So we were sharing jackets with you know our heavier jackets with whoever was standing watch to stay warm, and just using rain and sun gear to kind of really keep the wind off us to the extent we could. But uh, on the on the fourth day, uh, Mother Nature was coming out of the bullpen. Right, we woke up at the anchorage, and um, the, the the skies were dark behind it. It's not super black, but just you know dark gray. Uh, radar said, "Hey, small storm." So we we weighed the anchor and got moving on the motor. It passed in about thirty minutes. It was just sprinkles and stuff. We did learn at that point that the the chart we were using was a touch screen that was also uh, actuated by rain. So we had to you know, rig up a Ziploc bag cover for it so we could still see the chart and not let it get hit by rain. Um, we had about a two-hour break between that with some choppy water when the wind really picked up and the lightning started. And that's when it, this is when it really started getting scary. Um, I, I was the most experienced seaman on the boat, so I, I just 
I asked everybody else to go below. And I, I actually tethered myself to the stanchion by the wheel. So if the boat did go over on its side briefly or hit a big roller, I didn't end up overboard with nobody up there to you know, see it happen for sure. Uh, so we're rolling along. Wind's blowing about 40 knots for about an hour and a half. It was just a pretty bad storm. Rain and sea sprays picking up, so I, I couldn't see more than a mile. And uh, it was, you know, it was hairy. And, and after that, I was like, okay, deep breaths, right? Oh, we're good. We're good. We look back behind us, and now the sky's not dark gray. There's a black wall of death coming at us from behind, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, we're going as fast as we can, but we also are trying to conserve fuel because, you know, we, we are limited on fuel, and we're motoring when we plan. And wind starts picking up. Lightning starts getting close. And, you know, like I said, there's rain and sea spray everywhere. I, I can't see. I'm, I've got my visor pulled over, and I, I can basically see my charts and my instruments, and I can look up ahead of the boat a little bit for a minute and then look back down. You know, just glance up, look back down. Really, I'm really scanning to make sure there's not a rig out there that I didn't see uh, on, on the radar. And the rain goes so hard, I, I can't see more than like a boat length out. So I can see about 40 feet out ahead of the boat. And so I'm really going by instruments. And it was all of a sudden, bam. The last thing I see is the wind's blowing 45 knots. Mm. And lightning strikes inside of my vision while I'm looking down at the charts. It was less than a boat length away. Right? It was right on us. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of thought to myself immediately, hey, self, why, why, is, why is the chart not working? <laughs> why, why is the depth gauge not working? And why? Oh crap! We we have no electrical power from from the house batteries. Like so, the all of the radio nav lights, everything's out. And most importantly, in this situation, we didn't have any radar either. So I can't see. We don't have radar. Um, and it, you know, out in the open sea, where there's no oil rigs, it's scary, but not insurmountable, right? But outside of the safety fairway in the northern Gulf of Mexico, it was it's just a totally different story. So we all we had left was our charts, which um, you know, I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit about how the charts really helped out, but that, that was, that was scary. And, uh, it, it was scary. And then the final two things that kind of went wrong is so from an energy perspective, we left, we left Houston 10 gallons short of a fully topped off tank. Um, the owner wanted to get underway and skip one last trip to the gas station to fill up our extra tanks, which we really should have done it, but we didn't. Um, and based on the weather I just described and the new route we had, we needed every last drop of it. Okay. According, according to the burn rate we calculated, we came into port at the home of fuel dock with less than a gallon of diesel. And, you know, we're in the intercoastal waterway at that point, navigating around big barges. We can't sail in there. So if, if we were to run out of fuel, uh, we would have had to just drift over to the side, anchor and call for help with the sat phone. Um, so it, it got it got really hairy with with a fuel perspective, and that was uh, all of us admitted to ourselves that was stupid, right? Ten more <laughs> gallons of fuel would have gotten us, you know, all the way home, uh, and and we saved ourselves an hour and and potentially cost ourselves very dearly uh, from you know safety and and material perspective. And then electrical. This is the kind of whiz kid thing that I was a. a I was scared to watch, but happy my boss was willing to do it. Uh, the, the lightning strike was really close by, right? And uh, it may have hit the boat with a little bit of the, the current, don't know. But we def we lost all electrical and instruments, right, at that point. And 
we couldn't do anything about it in the middle of the storm because we're pitching and rolling. They're getting thrown around down below. I'm up on top of the boat, again, strapped to the boat with a tether. Um, and this storm lasted a few hours, and we're getting close to the end of the day. Like, you know, it is not bright outside at this point, and we don't have any nav lights. So, uh, yeah, we had to come up with a way to get to that, and that's that's kind of where I guess the rest of the story goes as we get get through the rest of this. So... With all of that, not exactly being smooth sailing, how did some of the preps you made pay off and help out here? Right. So we, we had, we had extra drinking water, right? Which I taught we had enough drinking water really to last us the whole week. Um, and, and that was, that was turned out to be great. We, and we had, we, we thought, Hey, you know, baby wipes for showers. I got a little grief about that when I brought on the baby wipes, but I'm like, no, trust me, I've done this in really bad conditions. This is going to be a breeze doing it on a boat. It'll be easy. And like I said, you know, we had the ocean as a urinal. So that, that, that really helped us, um, with the water issue. Once the water pump went out, it sucked. Uh, cause there, you know, we, we were getting a little raunchy, uh, smelling, mm. but, uh, but you know, it works. And then in changing the route, you know, that it was very nerve wracking at first for me, uh, you know, because of just the density of the rigs up close to the Louisiana coast, but we had planned ahead and, and had electronic charts downloaded for every electronic device. We had backup batteries, just, you know, little USB charger batteries. And once we lost power, we just started cycling through uh, each, you know, we'd cut off all the devices except for one and run it and until it was close to, to dead, turn on another one, plug that one back up, let it charge while we're operating off another one. You know, I could just hear Stephen Harris in my head, run silent, run deep, run silent, run deep. And I was really hoping we didn't have to run deep. <laughs> there was no no deep I wanted, but we were trying to really minimize our electrical usage there. Um, and, yeah, and so that's, the, the planning just really helped out there. And, and I got a lot of grief for all my prepper bags of stuff I was bringing. The only bag I did not have to go to of all the six bags I took uh, was the – uh, you know, my first aid kit from, from, uh, dive bones and nurse Amy, right? That's the only one I didn't have to go into. We were able to handle everything with just band-aids, um, that happened. So it, it really paid off big time. Well, it's, it's good when you don't have to go into the first aid bag, man. That's always like, you're glad it's there, but you're glad that it's just there and you don't have to go into it. Um, when the planning didn't help, what is what finally got you home? So, I mean, really, for for all of us, it was it was kind of a, a, the survival survivalist mindset, systems thinking, like what do we have to work with in the situation that we find ourselves in, right? How can we use those things to get the most out of our situation as possible? And you know, n- neither of the other two people on the boat were TSP listeners, but but all of us have a similar mindset in the way we work through things, and and that was just a huge asset when it when it hit the fan. All right, well, how do we clean it up? How do we clean it up? Let's get the fan clean again. Uh, and then, you know, like having the backup charts, having spare electrical wire and termination kits, it, it's good that we thought about it, but like, what are we going to do with some spare wire and termination kits? Uh, you know, once we got in the channel, my boss like rigs up a temporary like six foot black cable and six foot red cable and rewires the battery that the diesel was driving over to the electrical panel that drives all of our stuff so we can get our lights on about 30 minutes before dark, right? So now we have lights, chart, radio again. 
but we're running off the diesel battery instead. But, you know, with, without, we literally said, Hey, let's get some termination kits so we can make up a wire if we need to. Uh, but no idea what we're going to do with it or if it's going to be useful, but just being able to think in that situation, I have another battery that's at, that's available to me. I'm going to get that one hooked up to this electrical stuff in some way or fashion. It's all 12 volt DC. We can make this work. Uh, so that was, that was really it. And it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, some of the ingenuity, you know, we, when we were, when we lost all electrical, we're out there, like I said, 40 knots of wind flopping back and forth on the waves. And, uh, I'm tied to the front looking like, I mean, to the, to the wheel, like captain Ahab. And, um, my, my, uh, buddy who was on the, on the boat with us, who works for me, he's standing in the, in the gangway looking up at me, or sorry, in the passageway, looking up at me, holding my, my cell phone as the chart. And he's saying, Hey, you need to come right about five degrees. Cause there's a rig up about three miles. You need to come right about five degrees. All I have is the magnetic compass on the boat, right? Cause the, the charts out, everything, all the electronics are out, but I had a little floaty compass and I'm like, I don't know if I can tell if this is five degrees. I'm going to start averaging out over here because the waves are just bouncing you back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being able to think, okay, I still have a chart. I just can't see it. He can, he can communicate to me. And we have one instrument that'll tell us basically where we're going. And people navigated the world for hundreds and thousands of years with this. We can handle it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was just, just thinking on your feet and what do you have that'll work? And, and that a lot of that I learned here. Um, and, and we've all learned that somewhat in our jobs and, uh, being able to put that to work. It was, it was wild. Awesome, man. So, um, What was your favorite part of this experience? It sounds like there was good and bad. Yeah, so it, it's hard to have like one on this one, right? It was, it was an, a, definitely an experience that I'll. It, so, so catching the tuna, right? It was super exhilarating. I thought that was going to be my favorite part of the experience. I was, I was stoked about getting the fish out there, and when I caught them, it was like I've never screamed fish on as as loud as I did when I saw that first tuna. It was just amazing, um, and being as far away from civilization as you can really get in a place where the Milky Way really looks like milk in the sky and kind of just getting in tune with the stars and the wind and the waves, the rhythm of that. And, um, the piece of that, it's pretty, it's peaceful and awe inspiring. We even saw, we saw a green flash, um, which as the sun sets, the images of the sun kind of stack up if there's the right atmospheric condition, uh, conditions. And for just a moment at the end of the day, the color, there's this color, the, it kind of lights up green, just, slightly longer than the sound of a snap, just slightly longer. And we saw one. It's my first one I've ever seen. Um, it, you know, sailors talk about it because you see it at sea more than you see it uh, in, on land. Uh, but it, that, was, that was amazing. But my, my real favorite part, I think, and the, th- the thing I'll be telling my grandkids about, in, in the tuna and in the stars, but it's really the story of when the shit hit the fan, right? It, it wasn't the end of the world as we know it. But it was the momentary end of the world as our crew knew it, right? It was, we were up a creek without a paddle. And we really just all felt that adrenaline rush that comes at you when you're under an immense amount of stress. And, and luckily, you know, you don't, you never know how people are going to react under stress, right? Some people freak out. Some people go to town and, and get busy. And then luckily all, all three of us kind of had that laser focus reaction. And, uh, you know, we worked together to get through some pretty serious, 
dangerous things, wind, waves, lightning, invisible oil rigs, uh, you know, emergency electrical work while the boat's pitching around. Uh, and, you know, while, while I was up by myself on top of that boat during that storm, uh, you know, and the, my, my buddy's looking up at me, supporting me with directions, um, and they're both looking at knowing that I like I have their safety in my hands. I was I was scared, right? It was scary. Uh, at some point, it's super loud out there. There's wind, waves, rain. I, I broke out into like the hymns I knew as a kid, you know, just singing them to myself in the wind. Um, but but after after I calmed down a little bit and really focused on what I had to do, I got to a pretty peaceful place of just like, okay, this is the situation. Accept it. And all of us just put our past experience into play to get ourselves home. And, you know, that, that mindset that you've helped me hone over the years and that, you know, the things I've learned from you, I've taken other places in my life. It's really, uh, a solid part of the mental side of it for, that, that helped. And, uh, you know, for that, I'd, I'd really like to thank you very much for what you do for me and for everybody else in the audience. Because when you get in a situation and you can just ground yourself and say, okay, what do I have? How can I make it work? And we're going to push through this until we can. Um, it was an amazing experience. So I think my favorite part was being pushed to that level and and having an opportunity to, you know, I believe in myself more than I did before that experience. Getting through it. Getting yeah. through it and having that and to be able to look back at that now and say, hey, like I actually was able to do this. And that memory now is something you just have. Like That's right. There's That's right. there's no repossession crew that can come out and take that away from you. And the, when you're an old man crapping your pants, you'll probably still remember that. I mean, that's that's something that that's hard to uh, to top, really. Yeah, that's right. And and it gives you confidence. Like, okay, if I can do that, what what is it that I can't do, really? If I want to put my mind to it, um, you know, put the plan together, execute the plan as best you can, and be ready for contingencies that may happen when they happen, so that uh, you can you can survive it and really thrive through it because as soon as we were through that storm when we got electrical power back up and we got tied off in homa the rest of the time was a party you know it was we made it and now it's just now it's just moving through the intercoastal um you know enjoying life and, and the freedom of that right there's nobody out there telling you where you can be what you can do um you go where you, you know you go where you want to be and you go when you want to go and uh there's that that's certainly scratches the itch for me of you know kind of wanting to be out and away uh on my own terms uh, which is difficult to do in modern life but th this experience was definitely that for me awesome man so what would your advice be to someone that's that's considering maybe doing something like this so you know do do your research right if you've never been on a boat don't start with this um learn learn how to operate a boat Uh, read about boating, um, read about whatever, whatever the activity you are going to do, you know, read about it, watch YouTube videos about it and, and ease your way into it. Uh, you know, don't go on a sailing passage, uh, before you know how to sail a, a small thingy, like a sail, a sunfish or a laser or something, you know, don't, don't start trying to sail a cruise ship. Uh, and, and work your way into it. Just, I mean, you don't you don't start out with a with a 50 BMG, right? You learn to shoot a 22. You you step up to a, a bolt action hunting rifle. You, you eventually get into like a semi-auto rifle, 
um, you know, like your AR or whatever, and then you, you shift into larger and larger weaponry that you can handle. This is the same goes for this. Just it's a, it's a different skill set that you need to piece together. And, and the, the internet's an amazing, an amazing resource for learning a lot of gotchas and learning a lot of lessons learned, but you got to get out there and do, right? Just do it. Just get, get shit done. Um, go do some things that build up to whatever that kind of apex goal you have is. Um, I have a long-term desire to kind of, just like your, your buddy down in Florida, I, I have a long-term desert, uh, desire to live on a boat as I, you know, get out of the kind of day-to-day career. Uh, and my wife loves boating too. And, and so now I'm more confident in that because you spend most of your time there in port, right? Yeah. But this, this experience says, okay, I can go from one port to another, um, over a few hundred miles passage. And as, as I do a few of those, I can work my way up to a thousand mile passage. And as I do a couple of those, I can work my way up to a Pacific crossing, you know? Um, but I'm not ready to do that yet. No. <laughs> you know, no, not yet. It takes time. Yeah, yeah, it's it because takes time. The, the sea doesn't give a shit about your intentions. Yeah, right. No, like, yeah, it's kind of probably good that you had some real issues with the first trip, because I think what can happen with things like this, not just, with ships in the ocean, but in many things that have inherent dangers is if the first one goes too smooth, the level of false confidence can be really, really dangerous. Or deadly. Or deadly, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. See, the false, my, so my, my boss was actually pretty confident in his ability to go do this. Uh, he, he thought he just needed help. And, yeah. you know, from a, from a it, it, single hand in those things is, is Almost, almost deadly out there because of the rigs, right? You might sail into a rig that you didn't know was coming when you fell asleep. Um, but when I got out there, I realized, okay, he has not sailed a boat this big in wind like this before. Yeah. So I had to really re- refresh him on sailing, and I had to teach, uh, you know, my employee that was with us. Uh, I had to teach him how to sail, and I knew he would pick it up quick because he's a, he is a boater, but. Um, he was my boss was confident. He's like, I got this. And after day two, which had gone swimmingly from my perspective, I mean, we'd been out there. I slept. They were like, Oh, it's so bad last night. I didn't feel a thing. It was nice. <laughs> easy. It, we're, only, we're like three, four foot seas, twenty knots of wind. We're just, I mean, sailors' dream. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and and they, you know, my boss was standing there, kind of wide eyed, going, Oh my God, what have we gotten into? And I'm like, no, This is perfect. And when it really hit the fan. You know, there was there was a few moments of him like deer in the headlight. Oh my God, we're gonna die! I'm like, look, we got this. Yeah. Here's what here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. And here's what I need. And here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, but overconfidence can bite you bad. I'm with you, man. It's a, it, was, it was a I'm it was a great shakedown for the boat. It's my first time ever on that boat, uh, and it was really a great shakedown for me at sea um, because I realized it wasn't that bad. Like we weren't in a hurricane. Yeah, we were just in a thunderstorm, and yeah. it only lasted a few hours. Uh, so it, it could be much worse. And they're, they're uh, not making a movie about you and putting a monument up in New England. That's right. <laughs> you know? that, that's, that, that's right. No, I'm sure if you've seen that movie and you know what I'm talking about, there's maybe a few flashbacks uh, oh, yeah. when you saw Perfect that wall story. of shit behind you. Yeah, and you're yeah, going, was... oh, we're not going to outrun this. No, it's yeah. <laughs> we're moving this fast, and it's moving this much faster, and yeah. Yeah, you know, the waves that the guys on the Atlantic will make fun of the Gulf of Mexico sailors because our waves aren't as big. You know, they get these huge rollers coming in off the Atlantic. 
but the in the Gulf it gets angry. Like the you know the wind is blowing it in one way, and then it, it gets really choppy. And so yeah. we were in we were in six or seven foot seas, which on a forty foot boat is not horrible. On a sailboat is not that horrible. Um, you, you probably you might not want to eat breakfast, um, but it's not it's not horrible. You can handle it. But when it starts coming at you six or seven foot seas from two or three different directions. You know, uh, it gets nasty. But, but I certainly, I certainly did not have to surf a hundred foot wave like a like Marky Mark. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. So I think it wraps up that part a little bit, uh, pretty pretty well. Um, yeah. You had sent me an email, and we've got a little time here. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit? You'd mentioned that uh, your company does grants, and not necessarily specific to your company, but you could throw in a little bit here at the end maybe on people that are out there wanting grants for their business and what, what they can do with that. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So the, the first, let me turn off my sailor brain and turn okay. on my, my business brain. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the biggest point I would say is so, for, so first the internet's your friend, right? Like find companies that do, they give grants. Most companies are pretty public about the, uh, community development that they do, right? Uh, the term du jour that you'll see out in business is corporate social responsibility. Not, not, not write that down. Corporate social responsibility. Google it. Um, that, that, that's the organization that you want to find someone in, right? And the way that you figure out how to get the grant is not just off their internet form, right? You, you find somebody in a company and you start pulling the thread. If you were making a sales call, You'd find somebody that was connected to the company to get you in the door with somebody in the company to get you to the right person in the company to make that sale, right? So it's the same way with a grant. You're trying to sell yourself to that company. Why should they give you the money for, the, for that? How do you prove to them that you're fulfilling the mission that that money is intended for? Um, and the, the filling out grant applications is the first thing, right? So go find them. Use the internet to find the places that have the grants. And then to the extent practical, find a contact at that company and ask them to talk to the corporate social responsibility uh, or, or whatever they call it. You'll usually be able to find that organization or, um, or whatever it's called on the company's homepage because, you know, goodwill is a line item on the company's assets, right? Yeah. And, the more things they do like that, the more they can bump that goodwill up, uh, you know, on their on their book. So, uh, find find somebody to talk to. Uh, talk to other people in in the non the nonprofit world. Practically lives on on corporate grants. They they live on you know some some large private donors, but most of the funding comes from these you know large corporate grants or government grants, and using that network of people. So, you know, hospitals, um, there, there are people that do charitable giving American heart association. They may be able to help you find someone, um, find you're, you're looking for the right point of contact in the company, right? So that you can engage and make sure you understand what are they really looking for? Like what's, what's behind the grant application and what, what are their, real values as they would explain them to you because those are typically the people that are going to be making the decisions on the money. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my, my first one. And second is don't, you know, don't be afraid to apply and apply and apply and apply and tailor your application 
to what they're asking for. Sure. Right. Read, read their requirements. Make sure in some form or fashion you meet them. You know, you don't j- just back to the sales example. You or um, I guess this is really more marketing. You might not 100 percent explicitly meet some specification when you're trying to sell sell a product. But if you 99 percent meet it, then you can market yourself in a way that says, look, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Um, Use so, their language too yeah, with that. Right. Like if they use certain words, you know, that are very clearly buzzwords to them, make sure those buzzwords go back. That's right. And look, if you you can think you can think climate change isn't happening, you can think CO two is just what we exhale. But if they think that climate change is happening and they think that CO two is a problem and you're planting trees, yeah, like, capitalize on that. Yeah, you know, once you get the check and you're planting the trees and doing what they want, it doesn't affect your political belief system. You can still troll people on Facebook about, you know, being climate change, climate, climate stasis deniers, whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, just use their language and, and play to them. You know, you don't in, in any, any of the rest of the, the things you do in life, you don't walk up to, to McDonald's and order, you know, a, a Whopper, right? They talk in Big Mac language, so you use Big Mac language at McDonald's, uh, and, and really grants go that way. Tailor tailor your presentation to any given organization, whether it's the government or corporation, with the words that their specific grant is using, and and use their website, uh, you know, their corporate social responsibility, any of their public kind of marketing material about who they are and their their values. Use those words because those words will resonate with the employees of that company that are making the decision. They may very well be talking to the person that wrote those words. That's right. Right. That's I right. mean, like, oh, this guy gets it. Uh, yeah. Okay. As long as you feel that way. I think one of the things I've learned with grants and with if you're representing a charity and you're looking for a company to donate to it, anything like that, one of the biggest mistakes I see is people ask for too little. Um, That's absolutely right. There seems to be sometimes like, well, if you're only asking for that much, not only do we have more to give, like you can't be doing that much, right? Like, so we're not going to get a big impact. And you might be able to get a huge impact with a couple thousand bucks, but if you're dealing with somebody whose grant budget is a million dollars a year, how many people do they have to deal with to give them 2,000 bucks? So ask for as much as you can justify, and if you can't justify a lot, figure out how to. That's right. So, you know, we, when we get a grant application, we can never, we, we can't give you a dollar more than you asked for. Like, if you say, if you say I need $2,000 for this unbelievably world changing project I'm about to do in your service territory and it's going to be awesome, I can't give you 2001 <laughs> If you ask me for $50,000, I can say, you know what? This person really has a great, uh, plan. They've got a great idea. I can't give them $50,000, but what I can do is I can give them 10, right? Or I can give them five or wh- whatever the case may be. Or 49. But, yeah. Or, yeah right. or, you can yeah, give them 49,999. You just can't give them 50,001. Right. So go, go big. And, uh, and if you can describe parts of your, you know, parts of your pitch that with less money you could do, to make it easier for somebody, you know, if it's an all or nothing, 50,000, well, then that's the smallest number you should be asking for. Yeah. 
uh, you should be asking for more than 50. You'd be asking for 100. Right. But if you only need five and you can ask for 20 and say, listen, if I have, if I have 5,000, I can do this phase of this thing. You can write contingencies in. That's right. That's right. So that basically somebody looking at it doesn't have to guess what you would do with less money. You give them a path to success so that their money is going to something useful in the same direction uh, with with a portion of the funds. Yeah, yeah, I would say like breaking it down by phases and saying I'm going for X to do A, B, C, and D for Y I can do A, B, and C. Like the more you do like that, the more that person is likely to find a, a way to work with you. And I think finding the people and actually talking to them is huge because somewhere in that organization there's a person that's going to have either the, the total say or – a big influence on a committee or something, and you want that person rooting for you. That's absolutely right, and they and they're the ones who can give you tips about. So, and I mentioned phasing. Right? You don't you you want to be careful about saying I can get thirty percent complete, and but there's no deliverable at the end for no. this amount of money, right? No. You want to be I can deliver X for this for this there amount. Of money. I can deliver Y for this next amount of money, and you get the whole kit and caboodle for for this. Uh, but but people in the organization that you talk to can lead and guide you. And it's going to be a different answer for different companies, right? So making those personal contacts so when they see your grant come through and they say, hey, you look, no, we really don't have that in our budget. It, here's, an, here's a number that's really legitimate for us for you to ask for this year. It, it, they can help you hone it so that you don't go in you know, asking for 50 when they aren't going to give anybody more than $5,000 in a given year on their first year. Like, So we don't give a lot of money to a first-year person for most of our grants. Gotcha. Uh, we have some environmental grants that we can come in big with um, where there's you know a, an environmental project and it works. So that, that can be a big number for the first time. But you have to have proven success to get that kind of dollars. Sure. Right. And whether it be with us or with somebody else. But for our kind of just regular charitable giving that we do to um, to fund projects, it, it's not it's not going to be fifty. It's going to be one, two Three, five, something like that, you know, and, and so having the contact in the company that can give you the scale so that you don't look like you don't know, you don't look like you are uninformed when you come in with your ask. Well, and like sometimes it might be a single decision maker, more, more likely, especially bigger companies, it's going to be a committee. So there might be somebody on that committee that you really need to win over to gather enough support and get a majority. Even if you have somebody that's a fan, you're also going to need this person. That's very common. Uh, Absolutely, and that's in sales. That, that happened all the time. So, when you're putting a proposal in, whether it's for sales, whether it's for charity, whether it's for a grant, in that situation, like you need to know who that person is, and are there th certain things that just shut that person down? Because I might tell you a phrase to use in an industry that 99% of the time works, and maybe this person just heard it so much that person's like, "This is bullshit," right? right. So, like, and you're out the door before you even start. So, you need if you have that fan on the inside that says, "Hey, look, you know, Tommy is the head of the committee." Where he goes, the majority goes, and if you say this in your proposal, you're done. And likewise, they may tell you, if you say these things, right, then I can't you're, guarantee that you that, but you got his attention. This always gets his attention. And, like, knowing that is critical to success, in, in my experience. Yeah, and it takes it takes extra work. And, find, look, finding the right people to talk to, uh, I do some work for some, some nonprofits, uh, and, and finding the right people to talk to – Look around events that are in your area. Who's sponsoring them, right? And you'll see typically the same logos 
um, for you know the big healthcare people, the big uh, big industry that might be in your area, or and the you know the power company, who, whoever it is. If you look around the sponsorships, it's frequently the same people, um, and so working you know work those events, just look at them, you know, take a picture of the of the sponsorship thing. And the ones with the biggest letters on top are the ones that give the most money. And if they gave the most money to some bike ride or, or some, you know, cookout, they're more likely to be giving out other things that are more mission oriented grants. So align yourself with the ones that not only are, are giving money in the community based on the size of their letterhead on, on those sponsorships, but, uh, but also that, that are kind of aligned with your mission, right? And I would say one more thing I'll add from my side on this is you can say whatever you want about corporate responsibility, and there are plenty of great people in the private sector that want to do great things and they want to help, but in the end, they do it so they look good. So your proposal should say all the wonderful things you're going to do, and it should probably also tie back into how it's going to make them look great. How it's going to make company XYZ look like they give a shit about the starving orphans who need flowers in the inner city or whatever it is. Like they are going to be front and center, like that they are behind this, that they back this, and they did this wonderful thing, and the community is going to know about it. Some sort of a community outreach that says not only is this thing here now, but we owe it all to the wonderful people at XYZ Inc. Like right. that. That actually keys another idea that I, I, I had that I wanted to cover. If you, you know, we're, we we in our community think, oh well, you know, I don't, I, I hate Bear or Monsanto, formerly Monsanto, but now now yeah. Bear, whatever. If Bear is offering millions of dollars to projects that are aligned with what you want to do, I, personally, I'm not looking a gift horse in the mouth. You got to be careful because yeah. the path to the dark side is is you know it's, it's a dangerous yeah. road, but but if the requirements that you have to meet to to do that grant don't cause you any harm, it's just like taking money from the government. I mean, they, that's you're taking stolen stole money. Stole it, yeah. But it's going to get spent. There, Bear or Bear is going to give out that money to somebody. And so, if you don't have to do anything for them that goes you know beyond your conscience and your 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 set of moral values. If they're giving you money to go move a project forward that may look good to them, but is also kind of, um, you know, gray man permaculture, whatever, that take their money and go use it for good. Um, that's my view uh, personally. Well, I agree. It's the same thing when people got. Well, you bought that, and it comes from you know company X Y Z that makes Roundup or whatever. You know, like okay, so this is a fully organic product. So I'm rewarding them for doing good shit. Right? right and and like if you want them to do more good shit, then you got to be willing to step up when they do good shit and recognize it, because that's, right. that's, give, that's, give that's how this works. Right? Yeah, they gave me money to go do this thing, and look, look, they are doing some good, right? Yeah. And and the better press they get from that, the you know, look, we give a lot of money out to charities. We give a lot of money for uh, for some environmental impact stuff in our region. Yeah, and uh, it, it, we like seeing it talked about. It's good. It's good for us to not, you know, we just got, we were like one of the top 50 community oriented companies in the, you know, whatever, in, in a survey. I don't remember the exact details, but that's good. Like internally to the company, it makes the employees feel good. So the company wants that. External to the company, it makes our customers feel better about doing business with us. So companies that you're taking money from in grant space want to look good. Um, 
even to people that they have a tough time with, like Bear has a tough time with me. Sure. But but if but if I had a project that they'd give me fifty grand for, and all I had to say is, look, this money came from Bear. Yeah. Okay. There's still apples coming off that tree. Yeah. Well, Mr. Permaculture himself, Jeff Lawton, when I had him on the show one time and I asked him about Monsanto, his first words were, "Well, God, I'd love to have their research budget." Right. Right. Like, what could I do with their research budget if I was worried about actually, you know, genetically engineering food that survived instead of so it could be sprayed? Uh, right. Just as one possible example. And, yeah, so I, I get that totally, man. So, look, you didn't include uh, a website or anything with uh, your application, but you have your own your own podcast, right? Oh, no. No, no I do not. I, um, I have not even gone down that road. I, I've had thoughts about doing it in the past. Okay. But I've got three kids that are, like, mid-teenage all the way down to eight. And I'm a I'm a swim dad and a sailing coach and uh, you know that's life right now and it's awesome but I don't have time to take away from them. I'm so sorry I, I, that I don't know where I got that in my head. I wanted to make sure if you had something like that that I got you a chance to promote it. Yeah, no, I mean I, I I'm uh, I'm not promoting anything other than just hey listen to what the dude that's on the other side of this uh, this mic says uh, <laughs> because he he. Um, he will help you uh, when times do get tough, and even if they don't. I mean, his, the, the motto of the show uh, has really impacted me. I, I, I'm probably not going to get a call in for episode 2500, but I'll just say you are such a jerk. <laughs> you, you've made my life and my kid's life and my wife's life so much better for all of these things. You got me home practically on this thing. Um, so I, I really appreciate all the things you do for me and, and the community. Um it, it really means a lot, and dude, you're making a difference. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, I jerk. appreciate you saying that, and I love being called a jerk. When I when I first said that, I never thought it would actually turn into a thing, but a thing it has become. Anyway, man, I I really enjoyed having you on today, man. Uh, thanks for being with us and uh, talking about this. And I guess everybody kind of got a a two for out of it. I think the grant advice will help people as much as the uh, the sailing at sea story, man. So so thanks for being with us today, Dylan. Yeah, absolutely appreciate it, man. Take it easy. Great interview and really like a two-parter there. You got a, a good long story on the ship and a nice little mini-episode there on getting grants. And as we were talking about, the advice that we gave applies to getting grants. It acquire, uh, applies to, uh, to general charity solicitation, and it certainly applies to corporate sales. Uh, they're really all kind of the same animal with a different end goal, uh, but the way by which you execute is the same. And for some of you guys that own businesses, there are business-to-business grants out there. Uh, that really can help lift your business and uh, suggest you uh, take advantage of it. You do so and you might find yourself uh, enriched a little bit uh, from advice you got here at the Survival Podcast. If you'd like to uh, help enrich us back a little bit so that we can continue to do the work that we do, one way you can support us is really simple. I mean, there's almost no reason not to do this. You probably buy stuff online all the time. Next time you're going to shop online, start at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. From there, you can see all the reviews that I've done on uh, on Amazon. You can just check everything out there. I've got everything alphabetized by category. You can just see the deals of the day on Amazon. But if you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help support us in the work that we do. Before uh, The item of the day that I have for you guys today is one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, Chef Paul Prudhomme 
is a guy that I grew up watching on TV on PBS back when I had uh, exactly four channels to pick from, the, the three big networks and PBS, and he was on PBS. And uh, I had forgotten all about this guy until last year. I was out fishing with my fishing guide buddy, Omar. And uh, we, we really got into the, the striped bass. And I was out with a buddy named Thad and, and Patrick from MT Knives. And uh, we were talking about cooking them. And Omar's like, man, you need to get this Chef Paul's Redfish Magic seasoning and use it. And he told me how to do it and, and uh, on the grill. And I ended up just going straight to actual blackening. And I describe exactly how to blacken fish. But I definitely figured I would try it. Um, because when a man that fishes for a living says something tastes good on fish, he's probably right. But you just said Chef Paul, so I didn't know it was Chef Paul Prudhomme. Well, when I found this stuff, I was like, oh, the big fat guy with the beard that looks like Dom DeLuise. And I checked into it, and it turned out he had passed away in 2015, unfortunately. But this guy was really ahead of his time. Um, just when I found this, it brought back some great memories. And when I started blackening stuff, man, it just made things so damn good. It's one of my favorite ways to cook now. And I give away a bunch of recipes uh, and ideas in the review today. Uh, so check that out and uh, consider adding this stuff to your pantry. Uh, this really is some good stuff. Specifically, it's good on any kind of steaky fish. Um, like uh, mahi-mahi or uh, cobia. It would be great on swordfish. Really good on snapper. Any really good firm fish. But the only fish I've done it with that I really didn't care for was catfish. Now, when you cook catfish at such a high temperature, it gets a little bit soft, and it's not quite the texture I'm looking for. But a lot of your salted uh, fish, your saltwater fish is great. Uh, scallops and shrimp are awesome. Let me give you the basic of how you do this. You take a stick of butter and you melt it. You take your fish and you kind of just dredge it in the butter. You lay it one side down on a cutting board and uh, sprinkle the stuff on it fairly heavy. Let it sit for a few minutes Get a pan with also with butter in it. And I tend to use butter with some peanut oil to raise the smoke points a little bit. It's going to smoke when you do this right. Or you can go to ghee, clarified butter, and then you, you get a much higher smoke point. And you get that butter hot. I mean hot. And you take that fish, you lay it seasoning side down in the butter, uh, and, and hit the top a little bit of butter from the bowl to kind of wet the other side and sprinkle the other side with seasoning as well. Cook it till you get a good blackening, until you start to see it kind of beginning to cook through. Flip it over on the other side. Turn your pan like you're basting an egg and take your spoon and spoon some of the butter over the top of it. Cook it till it's finished. Take it out of the pan. You may not cook fish any other way for the rest of your life. Check out Paul Prudhomme. He's got a whole line of stuff. The, the Redfish Magic is the only one I had tried so far. And then recently I just tried the Steak Magic. It was really good as well. I even give you a way to make your own if you want to. I give you the, the ingredients uh, to make your own blackening seasoning in the PSS of the segment today. Um, give it a shot. I think you'll really like it. And on making your own, I gave you the, 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 the ingredients. I think you'll find for what you pay for a 24-ounce can of this stuff, it's a lot. Uh, you, you can't really make it for less than you can buy it, and it is top quality. A lot of pre-mixed seasonings I'm not a fan of. That's why I'm such a fan of Chef Keith Snow, because it's good stuff. Uh, because the pre-mixed seasonings usually is like powdery crap, and it just doesn't have a lot of flavor. This stuff, the first way I, I, I tried it was I opened the can and smelled it. I was like, oh, my God. I took a pinch of it and ate it straight out of the can. I was like, I could eat this like popcorn. It's that good. Give it a shot. Chef Paul Prudhomme's Magic Seasoning Blends. And check out Chef Paul. You can find a lot of his old PBS show 
uh, on YouTube in uh, you know kind of syndicated rerun type things you can find that people put up. Um, and I will say this about Chef Paul Prudhomme. When Chef Paul put together this blackened redfish magic seasoning, and just it was a blackened seafood seasoning at the time, and started making redfish with it and brought it into a restaurant down in, uh, in Louisiana, at the time people looked at redfish, and redfish is a type of drum, is a trash fish. Like no one ate redfish. And they had to put limits on redfish. And the redfish now population is great, and there's plenty you can go out and catch, and there's slot limits, and you can take home plenty, and you put plenty back. But for a while, this fish was endangered. This fat man and this seasoning are why. That's how good it is. Give it a shot. Chef Paul Perdome's Redfish Magic Seasoning. You can find it and everything else I've ever reviewed at tspaz.com. And remember, if it's there, I own it. I bought it. I spent my money on it. I'll spend my money on it again, or I wouldn't ask you to. Uh, I also tease that I'm uh, going over a walk uh, for next week. I will be bringing it to you next week. It's worked out. It had some things I had to do because of stupid lacquer they put on it at the factory. I understand why they do it. I seasoned it yesterday. It's beautiful. Uh, it's made by a company called Joyce Chen. Uh, if you're looking for a walk, you might want to check them out, but wait. Wait till I bring you my review because I'm going to tell you how to make your life a lot easier when it comes to seasoning that walk. That'll be coming soon. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day. The song of the day is by Freddie Mercury. Uh, John Adam, who puts this stuff together for me uh, on the, the music list, had made this Freddie Mercury week, and he gave me five songs that were just Freddie. And the, the one I liked the least out of all of them was today's. So... I used it as an opportunity to call an audible and go grab a Queen song, which Freddie Mercury and Queen, you really can't separate them up until Freddie was separated from life itself. Um, this is the last music video, the last song Freddie Mercury appeared in video doing, and it was not long before his death. The song became the title track and the title of a documentary about his life. And the song is called These Are the Days of Our Lives. The song was written by a band member of Queen, not by Freddie himself, and was really written with regards to that band member's children. Uh, but he did know that Freddie was likely to pass away fairly soon when he wrote the song. Of course, Freddie Mercury uh, had been infected with the AIDS virus, and that was back when we really couldn't do much about it. We didn't even really understand it uh, at the time that he passed away from it. Um, this song is so in league with what I talk about all the time on this show, about making the most of your dash, not being able to change the past, and only being able to control the present and the future. And that the things in the past that were wrong, the only thing you can grab from them is what to do today so there's not more of them in your future, and make the most of your dash. This is a fantastic song. Of all the great music that came out of Queen and the, the, the rock and the, the operatic stuff, this is probably the favorite thing that Freddie Mercury ever sung as far as my view. And that's why I called the Audible today and did a swap out. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Get your feeling. I was back in the old days long ago. When we were kids, when we were young, things.